0: Hello, you're listening to the Maastricht Diplomat. In this episode, we're trying things a little bit differently. Sherelle, AJ, and I tried a live show on With Love Radio, a community radio here in Maastricht. We hope you enjoy this episode, but I'd like to warn you ahead of time, we're talking about the Arab Spring, and there's mention of violence and torture. Otherwise, I hope you do enjoy our discussion, and tell us what you think. We're not live. I think we are.
1: Oh, hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> hi. Yeah. Um,
0: we're here in the uh, With Love Radio studio, let's,
2: let's the radio.
0: and this is the Maastricht Map. Yeah, let's just introduce ourselves. Uh, my name's Brendan.
1: And I'm Sherelle from the Maastricht Diplomat, and we're joined by...
0: Ahmed Rifai. Thank you so
2: much for having me.
1: Oh, you're welcome. We're really glad we're having this conversation with you. Would you please introduce yourself a bit?
2: Yeah. um, So my name is Ahmed Jawad Rifai. I come from uh, Aleppo, Syria. I was born and raised there. And then I moved to the Netherlands. I uh, studied at the University of Maastricht, and I graduated last summer. I finished my thesis. I was doing something along the lines of political science, FASOS. I think the audience know FASOS. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Den Haag and to study at the University of Leiden. I'm doing a Master of Middle Eastern Studies. And Michael contacted me to have this
0: show. So I'm really glad to be here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> some clapping in the background. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you've, you're going to, ro- or you have written a piece. Uh, for the Maastricht diplomat about um, the Arab Spring mm-hmm. and Arab identity in general, mm-hmm. uh, it it'll be up later today. And I first wanted to ask uh, you to elaborate a little bit more on your place of origin, where you come from, and how you got to the Netherlands.
2: Okay, so I was I was born. Uh, <laughs> Some technical difficulties in the studio, but everything is going to be fine. So, <laughs> my, uh, yeah, I was born in the city of Aleppo in 1998. And um, I lived there most of my life, I think, until I was 12 years old. And then the Syrian revolution broke out. We were very happy to see what was happening. You know, we were part participating in the Arab Spring, demanding freedom and equality for the region and uh, relaxing political liberties basically on the people. But then it escalated to a civil war and uh, things have gotten pretty violent and sectarian and then uh, the Islamists also emerged. And it was really, there was little hope left for people to stay and try to do something. And that's when we realized we should be leaving because also airstrikes started taking place close by to where I live. And generally in a war you can live through a lot, but airstrikes, you can't, no one can cope with that. you know. Even armed clashes, you're kind of safe if you're staying away. But with airstrikes, things can get pretty hectic. Mm-hmm. Of course, along with the economic crisis and the social crisis in the country, we had to leave. So I left with my family because I have a family that is living in the Emirates. They've been there for a while, a bit before the war. So we joined them there stayed with them studied high school finished my high school and at age 17 i wanted to come to europe because there are some difficulties as a syrian staying in the emirates with regards to like residency permit and doing your legal documents it's pretty tough so i realized that my option would be to go to europe to try to start a new life basically getting a visa into europe is really difficult it's not easy at all and i think you need approximately 10000 euros on your account and stuff like that 11 Eleven. <laughs> so my option was to really just go through the path, of, uh, uh, um, the path that refugees are taking, basically, which is going to Turkey and then from Turkey to Greece via a boat, and then from Greece to the Netherlands, um, trying to go with taxis, buses, walking, crossing borders, different countries. The whole trip took me approximately one month and it was really exhausting. I lost a lot of weight (laughs) this month. Um, But yeah, overall I made it, and I arrived to the Netherlands in September 2015. I worked hard on trying to get my residency permit and study at the university, and that was a bit difficult because the Dutch system has no idea how to integrate newcomers who want to study. They see in a refugee a person who looks for shelter and food, but they don't understand that we have kind of higher dreams to pursue also in this country. So I had to do, I I had to walk the path by myself and I received a lot of help from a lot of people. They were very generous with me. But overall, yeah, I was more or less alone trying to do these things. I'm happy that, yeah, I ended up at Maastricht University and specialized in political science because I was always interested in politics. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my thesis, it's a really nice thesis. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, I moved to Leiden to do Middle Eastern studies. Yeah. That's Ahmed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What was your thesis about? Was it uh, related in any way? to your background as a Syrian?
2: Oh, definitely. Uh, My thesis was about uh, neoliberalism and how it uh, it created the sectarian violence in Syria, how neoliberal economic policies magnified inequality in the country and made inequality felt worse. Mm -hmm. But because in Syria you have a more or less sectarian structure of society, then the inequality is going to be felt differently by different sects and
0: groups. Mm -hmm.
2: So that also led into, it it kind of escalated the violent conflict. So you can see in rural, let's say, rural Sunni Kurdish areas, they experienced far more poverty than, for example, Alawite areas that are allied to the regime. Mm -hmm. And this thing created a lot of resentment among the people that really just turned the revolution into what is in many ways a sectarian conflict as well.
1: Mm. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about the 13th of March, since today is the 13th of March and we're having this conversation.
2: (laughs) Happy anniversary to the whole world, (laughs) to the Syrians, to the Arabs, to all people who love freedom and equality in this world.
1: Can you please explain to our audience why the 13th of March is such an important date?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, um, to me, January, February, March are very important months because exactly 10 years ago, the Arab Spring Movement began. And on the 13th of March, Syria joined in with uh, 100 intellectuals, artists, uh, 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 organizing a demonstration in the city of Damascus to demand reforms. It was not demanding revolution. Around the same time and without any coordination, a story came out that in a rural area in Syria, in the south, Some children wrote on the walls, your time has come, doctor, in reference to Bashar al-Assad, that it's his time to step down and it's time for Syrians to participate in the revolution. These kids were arrested, their nails were plucked out. They were severely tortured and many of them died under torture. We're talking here about kids between 12 and 15 years old. And uh, their families went to the police station to say like, yo, we want our kids back. So uh, the police told them, uh, you forget about your kids and you go make new ones, and if you can't, then send us your wives and we will do it for, for you. And wow. that was seen as really, really insulting by the people there. So they decided to organize a demonstration on the 15th of March, two days after the one that was organized in Damascus. And then you see that two stories, so we kind of had two breaking points without any coordination, both of them came together, and then the revolution started. Initially, it was a demand for reform, but after one week, so on the 21st of March 2011, the government sent the tanks to suppress the demonstrations into the city, sending tanks to suppress demonstrations, and then they realized that it's not really simple reform that we're demanding here, it's a revolution because the guy who was in charge of security forces that tortured the kids is a cousin of Bashar al-Assad. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and Bashar refused to like even condemn him or take any legal measures against him. He came out and said, this is a foreign plot trying to undermine our country and we are going to uh, do everything to get rid of these viruses. So the people saw this as very insulting, very irresponsible from him. Mm-hmm. And then they realized this is really not a simple demand for reform. We want a full out revolution.
0: And did you see the escalation coming? Because it seems like the escalation happened quite quickly between February and March.
2: Yes, things went really fast, not only for what uh, uh, what we thought is gonna be, but also it, it's, it's important to understand Syria's position in the Arab world, and specifically the personality of Bashar al-Assad. Before the Arab Spring, Bashar al-Assad was seen kind of like the Justin Trudeau of the Arab world, let's say, (laughs) this young handsome man with blue eyes who studied medicine in England, he speaks English fluently, his wife is British. They always had a really close relationship with the British monarchy. They visited Elizabeth a lot of times. So it was thought that this guy is not gonna be messing around and is not gonna cause a lot of blood. It's gonna be a scenario similar to Tunisia. Few months, he resigns and a new government is formed but we turned out to be really mistaken. I mean, if you look at the Arab world and you see all the old leaders fell out, Qaddafi fell out, Mubarak fell out, Ben Ali fell out, but Bashar al-Assad, the young Stay leader there. who was not into politics at all when he was brought in power, is the one that remained. It's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a paradox, and it's an interesting anecdote to look at. So mm-hmm. we did not see this coming at all.
0: Well, what you were talking about, um, I think... It's important maybe to roll it back a, bit, a little bit and kind of start at the beginning to understand what led to this kind of explosion, I think in literal terms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we should start with Tunisia. Um, I, it's where it started. And I,
2: I think the story, the story in Tunisia, it's just, it's really wonderful because what, it, in my opinion, The story of this young man that sparked all of the revolution, Muhammad Al-Boazizi, may peace be upon his soul, he's a martyr, and um, the story reflects the broader idea of the Middle East. So you have neoliberal economic policies causing a lot of inequality in the country that so many uh, people from the young generation, the youth, are forced to do jobs that, uh, uh, that they find really demeaning. From, from their perspective. So, you have a lot of people who qualified, go to universities, have degrees, but there's underemployment in these countries. And Muhammad Bouazizi was one of these young people. He, I think, had a diploma, but he was unable to finance his family and find a proper job. So, he started doing street vending and yeah. he was selling vegetables and fruits. One day, a police officer stopped him and told him that you're selling here illegally, we're going to confiscate your crate. And uh, he started talking back and saying, you know, I just want to feed my family. She slapped him. He got really angry at the police officer and he said, you are fighting people. You're not letting people even make money. How can I feed my family? How can I do this, do that? And then decided to go to the municipality to complain about the police officer. The municipality pretty much told him, yeah, it's your problem. We can't do anything about it. So he just brought... um, a liter of gasoline in front of the municipality lit himself on fire and he died a week after in the hospital and he was the spark of the Arab Spring movement. Mm -hmm. Why do I love his story so much? Because it really shows that it's this global regime of neoliberalism causing inequality, pushing a young generation of people to do demeaning jobs, jobs that won't even make them survive and then the state comes on top of that Mm -hmm. to fight them with their their
0: well-being, basically, to prevent
2: them from yeah flourishing and reaching their
0: capacities and this was just after the bust of 2007-2008 so it was even worse the situation in all of the mediterranean uh, was pretty bad to put it lightly yeah so yeah i i i I can see what you mean Uh,
1: i wanted to ask something about your article because it's (laughs) It's really a, an emotional article, really. You, all, everyone should read it. If you want to understand what's going on in the Arab world, you really should read that. Um, but there's this part in your article where you wrote that it will be easier for millions of Arabs to leave their lands than for tyrants to leave their homes. I wanted to ask you because you are actually one of the Syrian, diaspora, Syrian refugees who had to leave their country because they couldn't flourish there. Yeah. So, what do you, as a Syrian refugee and now as a part of the Syrian diaspora, do you think there is a responsibility on your shoulder to reform or to reconcile what's happening there? Because I know it's there for me, you know, there's the survival's guilt.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think definitely the diaspora has a lot of responsibility to try to do something for the homeland, let's call it, to try to do something for back in Syria. Why do they have a lot of responsibility? I think because they enjoy, in, in the most obvious instant, they enjoy a lot of rights and they enjoy a, a larger degree of power where they can, for example, educate themselves, build networks in foreign countries and try to do something for Syria. Uh, at the second instance, it's, it's important because they carry this experience. Mm-hmm. It is not their children whose uh, parents went through this, no, it is themselves who went through this. And that's really challenging, Mm -hmm. because after 10 years of civil war, the people really lost hope in seeing democracy anytime soon in Syria, so they don't want to engage in politics. But at the same time, they are the generation that can do something.
1: They're
0: They're not only equipped with, as you said, the networks and all that stuff, but also a certain level of wealth and... uh, Education, education. access,
2: networking, definitely. Mm -hmm. So they have a large responsibility on their shoulders to do something. But it's it's sometimes difficult to demand that when you're talking to someone who lost a brother yeah. and you're telling them that they should be engaged in politics to try to do something. It can easily come across as patronizing. But I think also Syrians are no different than any other uh, nation in that regard. You know We're all equals and you see a lot of uh, uh, moments in history where nations were really exploited way worse than what happened to the Syrians. They took a period of processing what happened and then they stood up again and they try to do something. The most obvious example that comes to mind is the Jewish diasporas that had to flee from Nazi terror during World War II, and they went to the United States. Of course, the stories were horrendous, but at some moment, they managed to process it and deal with it, and they became very influential and very well-educated uh, in the United States. And I think this is something I dream to see Syrian and Arab people doing in wherever they are. Mm. There's,
1: um the story you told about um, the 26-year-old who sparked the revolution in Tunisia, to me, it it kind of represents the Arab mental state right now, because we're really severely depressed. Oh, yeah. I would like to think. Oh yeah. There's this collective depression because, li- like you said, there is no hope in the foreseeable future. Like you can't, uh, you can't count on democracy being executed in the way it should be executed anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And there's so many problems within the system, not just in applying democracy in these countries, but also within the people. Like I know Lebanon and Syria are sister countries, and yet within the Arab world, there's more conflicts than there is in the bigger picture between the Arabs and the, and the West and our relationship with other countries as well. Like Certainly. we, we as, uh, we, as Arab countries, were not even on the same page. And No. Th- what do you say about that?
2: I definitely, yes, we are in a kind of a state of depression, a state of uh, uh, lack of, a lot of lack of confidence in mm-hmm. what our civilization has to offer. And that's very interesting because historically we did offer a lot mm-hmm. and people tend to forget that and that's really painful. I would like even to call it a collective PTSD Yes, from Morocco to Baghdad. And the original sin really is, in my opinion, the psychospeco, because when they divided our countries, basically, and they established borders that did not correspond to any economic links, social links, or even sectarian links, it was just odd borders that served the interest of the French and the British. You can develop a democracy when you have a natural community, but when you're torn between the idea that this is not your natural community because your natural community should encompass the broader Arab homeland It is hard to see how you can accomplish a democracy mm-hmm. It can inevitably end up sectarian Because within the borders that you have Kind of inequality is deeply embedded Starting from these borders yeah. So the people, the people are really traumatized Because when they tried to do something For the first time in 1916 They were denied They were denied the right to do this mm-hmm. And they fear that if they look in the mirror again They're going to be denied again and they built up courage after 100 years to look in the mirror again and say, okay, let's fight for democracy. And they were denied it again. Mm-hmm. And that is really depressing. Whenever you try, you fail. And every time you try, it's gonna take 100 years, 50 years. That is really, it, it breaks the spirit of a lot of Arab people.
0: Yeah, and the narrative is often then that you you can't do it, that, that it's impossible for for Arabs then to have their own individual nations uh, and that it it ends up being almost a self fulfilling prophecy where you need you need a strong man you need mm-hmm. um, a how to say a, a a strong authoritarian and secular state that, yeah. that 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 wipes away all of the divisions um, all the different uh, groups yeah in the artificial order. borders
2: yeah definitely you also see this with a lot of Arabs I mean I wrote about it also in the article. The, the, the sense of defeatism really starts uh, spreading among the people. They really start developing the idea that Arabs are unfit for democracy and that we need a Saddam to rule us. We, are, we cannot be ruled but by a Saddam. We but started to believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for very good reasons. We also, in our culture, there is a saying that, uh, that goes, um, um, 60 years of tyranny is better than one day of chaos. Now, of course, this narrative gets mobilized and used in a certain way to uh, try to present that, okay, we we would rather have a tyrant than chaos. But people really forget that it's the tyrant that brings the chaos Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And of course, when your reality is, there's nothing very shiny in your reality, it's easy to fall into these thoughts.
1: True. And in your article, you you also mentioned the geopolitics. um, And you said to assume that the failed Arab states uh, is because of nationalism, is oil is the same as saying that World War II was because of the Nazis. Oh, yeah. Can you say how do you see the geopolitical um, circumstances that played in the failed Arab states?
2: Oh, definitely. Um, I think when people look at the Arab world, also from perhaps a Western perspective, this is the one I am familiar with, they really tend to see oil, oil all the time, oil everywhere, or ideology because the, the Arab world is known to be very ideological throughout history. It played a significant role, perhaps one of the most significant during the Cold War, and uh, people don't know much about that because there are other stories that come up when we talk about the Cold War. But Arab states were key states in the whole Cold War struggle. So people, when they look at the Middle East, it's ideology or oil. You see a lot of liberals trying to say that the Arab Spring is exactly what happened in Eastern Europe. You know, it's it's it's, Mm -hmm. you know, just as they overthrew authoritarian regimes and established liberal democracies. This is what the Arabs are aspiring to create. The socialists believe that it's all about equality and it's all about this and it's all about that. So everybody is really trying to 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 see the world after their own image, to explain what happened in the region after what they know and people who are ideological they use ideology people who don't know a lot they say oil because oil is the easy answer somehow Mm -hmm. but it's more than that in my opinion it is geopolitics nowadays way more than ideology or oil because when you look at the middle east with an ideological glasses and you try to have a genuine perspective on what's happening things don't add up Mm -hmm. so you have bashar al-assad for example the Baath government in syria who is historically known to be secular in my opinion, in some regards, even more harshly secular than European countries. And we can, we can get back to this point. But then for a secular leader to ally with the Islamic Republic of Iran, this is really odd. This, it just Ideologically, it doesn't make sense to put it like that. There's something more than ideology. It is perhaps geopolitics that can explain stuff that ideology cannot explain or oil cannot explain. Mm. Or look at the Gulf monarchies who more or less traditionally had a Salafi or Wahhabi understanding of Islam, which is very conservative, very harsh on women if they're not wearing a headscarf, very harsh on drinking, very harsh on relationships outside of marriage, and uh, the law is really punishing any of these incidents. Today, they are the ones making peace with Israel, and they are the ones rushing to uh, consolidate everything with the United States and Israel. So this also does not make sense ideologically at all. Mm -hmm. During the Cold War, it did, because it was Western, versus Eastern camp, but now there is no Cold War anymore, and you see all these alliances, and you wonder for yourself, what explains this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be I, honest, I still don't know, but I think geopolitics is a very qualified uh, 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 method to, uh, to try to provide a different perspective on things, to yeah. put it like that. Yeah. Uh,
0: I think this, this does bring, up ba- bring us back to uh, maybe even Libya and, and Gaddafi, uh, I mean, the, the geopolitical calculation there is strange even. Yeah. Because, I mean, the the West was following the American agenda of the global war on terror. Yeah. And Gaddafi was even uh, turned and, and started assisting the West, uh, maybe not very openly. Mm-hmm. Um, to to fight this very open-ended war with this very d- nondescript enemy. But then NATO turned around and decided it was better to get rid of Gaddafi.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, th- this is really interesting because the concept of terrorism changes a lot. Mm-hmm. Again, towards the end of the Cold War, the terrorist was perceived as someone who was uh, trying to advance Soviet interests. And Reagan and Gaddafi almost went to war together. There were airstrikes on Libya in 86. Gaddafi orchestrated terrorist attacks. He was funding the AGF in uh, Germany and training them in the Libyan desert. He was training the uh, Irish Republican Army. He was training Palestinian guerrilla groups to conduct terrorist attacks. He had a hand in the the Olympic kidnappings of the Olympic players from Israel. And um, so basically the concept of terrorism shifted because when one day Gaddafi was a terrorist, Today, it is more the Islamists that are seen yep. as terrorists. Yes. And honestly, if you're 40 years old, only 40 or 50 years old, and you're engaged in politics, things don't make sense mm-hmm. because terrorism has been completely redefined. So what actually happened in Libya is they, they tried to get Gaddafi out, but the agreement was with the Russians and the Chinese is that they would send the NATO in to maintain peace. And that's why Russia and China said, okay, if it's maintenance of peace, we're in. But when the NATO went in, they overthrew Gaddafi. Mm -hmm. And that was, they kind of violated the agreement with the Russians and the Chinese. And the Russians then told themselves, okay, if that's how you're going to behave, we have no reason whatsoever to believe that you want to go in Syria also to maintain peace. Mm -hmm. We're not going to fall in the same hole twice. Mm -hmm. So it it kind of also, it, it changed the foreign policy of Russia towards Syria because... Uh, uh, Russia had a lot of interests in the Arab world already during the Cold War, from the 50s. They had allies in Egypt, Jamal Abdel Nasser, they had allies in Iraq, they had allies in Syria. Syria was their closest ally in the Arab world, and they had allies in Libya under Gaddafi. Egypt signed a treaty with the West under Sadat, the president, after Jamal Abdel Nasser to make peace with Israel and become a Western ally. Iraq also kind of drifted towards that direction at some moment in their history, and then Libya was overthrown. This puts Russia in a really critical position because they cannot access warm water anymore. Mm -hmm. During the Cold War, the warm waters were very important in order to militarily maneuver with the United States. Exactly, These, these geopolitical interests survived the Cold War, survived all these ideological struggles, and they live on until this very day. And it, the Syrian water is very important for military maneuvers, but also for, uh, for economic purposes. So now it, Syria is worth the whole gamble, because if they lose Syria...
0: It's they, the last Russian foothold on the Mediterranean. Thank you so
2: much. It's really the last foothold. And if they lose it, they, it, it will be a major blow that I also do not think... Uh, uh, Putin personally is able to recover from that. And it's important to say that it's it's, it's really interesting to try to explain things also from the personality of the leaders, mm-hmm. not only geopolitics. Yes. If Putin is trying to put his picture next to uh, uh, Tsar Nicholas and Lenin, then he understands that if he loses Syria, he will not recover it in his lifetime mm-hmm. and he will not be remembered among the great Russian leaders. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is something that I think also feeds into his... Let's say a hardliner approach to Syria.
0: Yeah. Just just on the on the point of personalities, we we know that Gaddafi was maybe the personality <laughs> um, in North Africa. I mean, it's purported to be some of his last words is "Obama, son of Africa, you have betrayed us." Um, and I think that does highlight how, um, at the time, the West, specifically the Americans knew very well who Gaddafi was, knew very well that his, you know, when he says, I'm going to massacre everyone, yeah. that's probably hyperbole. And it's known due to the Podesta emails and um, WikiLeaks that he was back-channeling with Western leaders to say, it's okay, it's calm, we'll figure it out, mm-hmm. you don't need to intervene. And But for some reason, there was a, a key change this time, the West decided, no, this, we're going to take him at face value. Yeah. Which is strange, considering how well they understood Gaddafi at this point. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, definitely, definitely. They've been dealing with him for a long time. You know, he is a dictator that stayed in power almost for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And they more or less understand what Gaddafi wants. So basically, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, all of these Arab states had no huge backer in the world anymore so the choice for them was either to isolate themselves which happened to Saddam and eventually he was overthrown mm-hmm. or to try to consolidate their relationship with the west mm-hmm. so Gaddafi had a wonderful friendship with Berlusconi the italian <laughs> prime minister he had a good relationship with Sarkozy, also up to a certain point point. Yeah. and um, it was shocking for him you know because like guys you betrayed me there is even secret talks about making a deal with Gaddafi that he would not try to pursue a nuclear arsenal and he said yes as long as you don't meddle in the internal affairs of Libya but then again the agreement was violated and they went after him mm-hmm. so from the perspective of Gaddafi or even I would go as far as saying Kim Jong Un or anyone any any dictator who has beef with the west they say pretty much that you can't trust them. You cannot trust them, yeah. because you make a deal today. Tomorrow they violate it, and this is something happened to the Qaddafi, and he felt like he is stabbed in the back.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, this this leads into the the narrative that that was then spun to sell the intervention in in Libya by Sarkozy, Cameron, and Obama, mm. uh, that used. Mm, maybe very very naturalistic, very gendered language saying, you know these these poor people. We have to go help them. We have to we have to help them establish a democracy. We have to help them. Uh, they're unarmed. Most of this is lies and narratives. Oh,
2: certainly, certainly.
0: Um, I mean, you could you know the the people making decisions had the information that. These were armed rebel groups who weren't looking to establish democracy. No. Uh, yet this, this was the path taken. And I think that leads to a general, a general narrative that you also talked about with uh, how meddling from foreign actors defines the Arab world Yeah. today. Pretty and much.
2: I, client yeah. system, basically. Yeah. It's yeah. basically a client system.
0: And I think we'll get back to that when we come back after a small break. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think we're, we're going to play some music. Would one of you like to introduce the first song, Yatair? <laughs>
1: um, so Yatair is a song by the very, Le- very famous Arab icon, the Lebanese uh, artist Fayrouz. And it's from a movie called Safar Berlik. Safar Berlik basically is <laughs> the mobilization of uh, so many Lebanese, Syrian, Kurdish, uh, Kurdish, Palestinian men who were forced to fight for the Ottoman Empire, and any um, any population or any person who was uh, ex- um, who refused. refused that was executed, and uh, so. We're going to leave you with this song, and we're going to talk about it more after the break inshaallah inshallah. <laughs>
0: Unfortunately, we can't play the whole song because we don't have the license. So I'm just going to tell you to pause right here and go listen to and go listen to Ya by Fayrouz and Arabi Al Arab by Maryam Hassan. We'll wait right here. So, what she's saying in the song?
2: This song is really close to my heart. It's called Rabi' al Arabi, which means the Arab Spring. And it's by a singer, I think she is Sudani, the Sudani Mama Hijabi. She's like 40s or 50s. And she is singing a song for the Arab Spring, outlining the story of what happened and how people basically broke the chains of fear. And she is saying, Teach your children the general strike, sleeping in the tents, teach them. Uh, to be committed teach them the revolution basically uh, it's a really wonderful song yeah i like it a lot yeah
0: <laughs> it's quite beautiful i mean i, I can i'm just it's words. what we
2: should be teaching our children as well
0: <laughs>
2: and she's from tunisia no i think she's sudani sudani mm. oh
0: yeah
1: Yes, and that brings us back to the first song we put during our break, yeah, The Al-tai. And uh, the reason why we put this song, we decided to put this song, is because I really wanted to talk about uh, the 1916 famine that happened mm. during, <laughs> uh, in the Middle East. And I wanted to talk to you especially about it because there's a lot of communicative silences in the way we are taught about our history. So, basically, because of the famine, Lebanon lost 40% of its population, and also the famine happened in Syria, Palestine, so basically the region there. And this was
0: in 1916?
1: Yes, it was in 1916, and we... The way we were taught about it, it was just yeah a, hap- a famine happened yeah now nothing to to learn much about it, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask you if it was the same uh, in in Syria. Did you actually learn about it?
2: I think in Syria we learned up to the to the Ottoman Empire and then its collapse, but they did not go in detail. Also that that I left Syria really at an early stage, so I did not have the chance to explore the 20th century from the perspective of state education in Syria, Mm -hmm. so I I did not know a lot about the famine, I, I researched it on my own, and I was also shocked that something of this magnitude did not get any attention. Mm -hmm. The Spanish flu killed tens of thousands of people where we come from, Lebanon and Syria, but it also does not get a lot of attention. And it's kind of strange. Also, in terms of visual content, if you want to watch something about World War I or World War II, you will see a lot about what's happening in Europe. And And if you're very lucky, Mm -hmm. you will find something in Asia about Japan because of the bomb. But... The war, it's its a world war, right? Mm. Stuff were happening as well in the Middle East, stuff yeah. that were really shocking, mm. but there's not much. And I in Syria, I did not learn about the famine of 1916.
1: That's quite interesting, honestly, because I believe you have to learn about your past and not just take these information in, but you have to be able to critically think about the circumstances that, that led to this kind of incident. So... Um, the way we are taught about history is that they don't introduce critical thinking so it's just this is what happened oh yeah and this kind of created at least for me a hatred towards my culture because i didn't really understand what was happening and it wasn't until i came here that i fell in love with my culture i was always brought up on the idea yeah i have to leave i have to leave and this Mm. is why your article really hit deep um, because it spoke a lot about the mental state of Arabs in general because we are born with the idea that our countries are bad and we have to leave them and yet we are not trained to fix the problems that are there. So the only solution to you uh, that's available to you is to leave. Otherwise, you're just going to be sitting in this chaos yeah (laughs) and you can't really flourish to your full potential even though we have so many solutions to offer
0: especially um you two you both grew up in the fallout of the iraq iran war Mm. and yeah um yeah and just ever since then it's it's been quite chaotic oh yeah Uh, so a lot of events in the middle east Mm. all the time yeah.
1: People kind of forget, even the Arabs forget that our countries are relatively new. I mean, mm-hmm. for Lebanon, it's only a hundred years, <laughs> yeah, so it's, we've, nothing. it's nothing. We've only been governed, you know, if, uh, around the centuries. We've only been governed. We never really got the chance to self govern. And then when we got to the point to self govern, we practically failed at it.
0: Yeah. But
1: I wanted to ask you about a pattern because I see a pattern. I don't know if you agree um i was reading about the history of the uh, state of iraq and basically the Brit- the british before they left they put the sunni elites in power yeah. and the same thing happened in lebanon so the french put um a maronite president a sunni prime minister and a shia speaker of parliament yeah. and now you see the the consequences of that re- of that structure so they already had Uh, they built a structure that is already fragile and would cause a lot of inequalities, so there isn't much inclusion. They gave power to a certain majority, and then the minority spoke, and I think this is how or why... Uh, like one of the indirect reasons, if you want, for the Arab Spring, do you do you think there's a pattern there?
2: I definitely. I think the structures that were put in place embodied the seeds of their own destruction. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it. They were more like an atomic bomb than anything else. So mm-hmm. it's it's a time bomb actually, not an atomic bomb. So it was just the clock was ticking, 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 and then with demographic shifts you have the uh, uh, Lebanese Civil War breaking out, basically, it's more consequences of it, 15 years (laughs) of hectic war.
1: And we don't know what happened. We don't (laughs) learn about it, actually.
2: No, not really, not really. Even if it's taught in history, it's taught as isolated facts, Mm -hmm. not as how uh, uh, um, the French instilled the system in power. Mm -hmm. Um, I I even had a European friend once who who jokingly, I was telling him about the, the Lebanese Civil War, and he jokingly said, yeah, but I mean, of course, they're gonna have a civil war. Why would they put on themselves the sectarian contract at the first place? Mm-hmm. I was like, bro, man, no. Have no. you heard of French colonialism before? <laughs> so yeah, no, and, no, and no. Of, Jamais. Of, Jamais. <laughs> of, yeah, yeah, and and it's it's really hard to blame people for these things because they they in in history they look like very small moments. Mm-hmm. I mean, France putting a sectarian social contract in Lebanon before leaving. I think France was doing way worse stuff around that time in other places that got Nigeria. the attention. Thank you, so these little things don 't matter as much, but again, they are time bombs, mm-hmm. and they exploded and if you don 't know who put this time bomb in place, you can never prevent this from happening again. yeah,
0: you could even look further back right so the collapse of the no, the collapse of the Ottomans when turkey was was forming its own state um, th- there were side effects that I only recently like heard and learned about, for example, the uh, elimination of the caliph. Uh, this, I mean, for lack of a better word, this pope mm-hmm. of of Islam. Yeah. Right. Um, you know that happened maybe just around a hundred years ago, and maybe even that has already its own ticking time bomb effect. And then mm-hmm. every half decade, there is another additive, if you will, and usually from a foreign entity. You've got Russia or the USSR before and now Russia protecting its interests in the Caucasus and then uh, Afghanistan and obviously the Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. Um, and then you have the Americans and you have the French and the British. They're all there. Yeah. We're very lucky. It's a big it's a big party. <laughs> big party, everybody's invited. Exactly. Mm. As long as you're not Arab. Yeah, yep. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Then you're just an observer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Certainly. From the outside. You leave and you watch from the outside. Mm. Mm. I, don't, I don't know where I was going this now. I mm. forgot where I was going. Uh, oh, yeah. So there's these long running already undercurrents that have shaped the Middle East and you've got countries like Iraq and I would even say Syria that are completely artificial you know they you know you've got the Kurds in both those countries in the north that are of their own identity their own uh, yeah. governance structures yeah um, and then you have the different clans in uh, both those countries that m- they live cross-border they live they lived a cross-border life that that doesn't respect these these Sykes-Picot lines.
2: No, well, the Sykes-Picot lines don't respect the, the, the these
0: these cultural exactly. Entities, basically, I, I think man that's man probably a better way of phrasing it. <laughs> um, sorry, I am French, so that's why. So, uh,
2: so you would have a so we'd have a Syrian clan in the Syrian in the Syrian Badia or the desert area, and they have a cousin who's Iraqi. How I don't know. Um, I think when it comes to sykes and the carving up of the region, the, the Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, and Iraq were the most damaged. Mm-hmm. Because yes, Egypt had artificial borders, but it kind of corresponded to the cultural entity that they had. Yeah. But Iraq, it's, it's, for Syria, it was decapitation because this whole thing was always seen as Bilad al-Sham or as, as the colonialists call it, the Levant. Mm. So it, it was all one big cultural entity and then you're decapitating it, basically. Uh, In Iraq, it's the same story. It was uh, three or four big mega states, which is Mosul, Baghdad, and uh, Basra in the south. Mm -hmm. They put them all together and decide to give them a state. Then they realized there's a tiny bit that has huge access to oil, and this might actually undermine British interests. So they decided to cut it off and call it Kuwait. (laughs) So. Basically. So, so
1: they divided it. So they divide and conquer. So it's
2: Yes, a- absolutely. And they themselves had no idea what borders would correspond to their own interests. Mm-hmm. They knew we needed that oil, but we have no idea how to conduct this. Mm-hmm. And that's why the Sykes-Pico plan has been drafted and redrafted again and again and again and again until the final version we had of it.
0: But I think that's what's also so insidious about that, about, about the sykes line. And it, it reminds me of, oh, I've forgotten the name now. But the lines drawn uh, drawn in uh, the Indian subcontinent that it was just out of interest for colonial power and not at all, even considering <clears throat> what what people live there, what the mm-hmm.
2: native inhabitants prefer, of yeah. course, yeah. definitely.
0: Uh, it's, and it's not even out of you know <clears throat> maliciousness or anything like that. It's like we don't want to you know we want to cut them up because like that they can't rebel. Mm-hmm. It's. We didn't care. Yeah, we yeah. don't know. We mm-hmm. don't give. We don't <laughs> care. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I think, I think those now, with the collapse of the centralized states that were created in the sixties, um, or the collapse in the sixties and seventies of these states. Uh, no, sorry, creation of, in the sixties and seventies of these states, and the collapse recently in the two thousands. Um, all this together has led to where we are now.
2: Oh, certainly, certainly. And I mean, also for, for a lot of people, they might wonder why, if we're talking about the Arab Spring, we're mentioning psycho Spico a lot, because pretty much psycho Spico is the foundation of all of our politics. It is kind of the original sin that led to everything. So Arabs have been trying to overcome the mistakes by Sykes-Picot. They formed the United Arab Republic between Egypt and Syria. They became one country and it was a failed project under Jamal Abdel Nasser. Syria and Iraq had negotiations and they were very close to becoming one country before Saddam Hussein overthrew the Iraqi government and refused this project. Libya, Egypt, and Algeria also formed something between them. This is why Hafez invaded Lebanon, expansionist projects. This is why Saddam invaded Kuwait. This is why Syria has a lot of beef with Turkey, because there is a a region of Arab-speaking Syrians that was taken by the French and given to Turkey. My hometown, Aleppo, had access to the sea. It was cut and given to Turkey, this area. And if you go there now, they speak Arabic but it's Turkish territory. The same thing in the Ahwaz. It was taken by the Shah of Iran. It was given by the British to the Shah of Iran and its Arabic-speaking people. Also, Saddam went to war with Iran trying to reclaim that territory. So for us, we still haven't settled about our borders. Mm -hmm. And then that is the paradox. If we still are not satisfied with the borders that we have, how can we have a democracy?
1: Exactly, yes. I think what this teaches us is that when you... Especially now, like if we're talking about the Arab Spring, you will not see the the outcome of the Arab Spring now. You have to wait for at least like it's only been a decade, and yet yeah. it's been a decade. So you can't really see what's gonna happen now. You have to wait. This is the beauty of history. You have to you have to wait. You do an That's action now. Yeah, the pain exactly. You do an action now, and then centuries later you're still talking about it because it was such an important event and here we are talking about Sykes-Picot even though it's 2021. Oh yeah. So yeah. but I wanted to ask you something uh that you mentioned in your article. You said nowhere the shifting geopolitical priorities of regional and global actors seem more apparent than everyone's favorite war on terror, mm-hmm. which often Satisfy Western (laughs) fantasies. Can you elaborate what you mean in that sentence?
2: Yeah, um, what I meant by satisfying Western fantasies to me, I had the image of my brain of a magician, you Mm -hmm. know, you just focus on the outcome and he does the trick secretly, so you're just very obsessed with the outcome. And unfortunately, this is what the West has been obsessed with for the last 20 years since the 9 11 attack, Mm -hmm. whenever there is. Islamic fundamentalism emerging. This gets all the priorities. It gets all the attention the media attention the public attention, etc, etc but this overshadows the fact that uh, 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 a lot of dictators had a hand in fostering these Islamic groups Mm -hmm. So for example, I also mentioned that Bashar al-Assad actually did reforms to release political prisoners most of which were jihadis Mm -hmm. so you are kind of having you're breeding a monster in your prisons And once you see that the whole world turned against you, you release this monster to kind of tell the whole world, if you want me out, this is the alternative. So work with me to get rid of these terrorists in brackets. And then Trump came to power and he is someone who resembles this perfectly, you know, no human rights, no regard for democracy whatsoever. We saw it in his own campaign. Mm -hmm. The only thing that is that matters actually is going after Islamists. But... Be it with rebel groups in Libya, be it with Islamists, with ISIS, with Al-Qaeda, they did not, all of them combined, they did not kill as much as any single Arab dictator. So it is kind of the value system we have in place is really troubling. And why does it satisfy Western fantasies? Because it seems like it's something they're looking for. They Mm -hmm. hope to see it there so that their priorities can shift.
1: the because, representation.
2: Exactly. Telling the West you have a responsibility to help these people democratize because you screwed them over throughout history, mm-hmm. this is a difficult task. But telling them to send airplanes to bomb ISIS, this seems much more convenient.
1: Yep, exactly. You have the us versus them. It's much more clear to say mm-hmm. that Islam is a <clears throat> terrorist religion than actually saying that you kind of screwed up in the past so it makes a clear entity towards which you identify or against which you would identify you would compare yourself exactly absolutely
2: and you know this is fascinating because the whole beef between islam and the west is 20 years old Mm -hmm. but western people know seem to know so much about it seem to be so engaged and seem to have strong opinions about it but psychic that happened 100 years ago the algerian war that happened almost 50 years ago 60 70 years ago there is not much known about it. No. So it seems like also our approach to history is very selective, what we choose to remember, what we choose to know about. Mm-hmm. Because you would think that after 100 years of psychospeco, people know more about it and people understand how it shaped the region, mm-hmm. yet when you talk to them, the only thing they can think about is the 9-11 and the terrorist attacks, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So how so? How did we end up here?
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, as you said, <clears throat> Algeria was even part of the predecessor to to the European Union, the European communities, because it was still part of France. Mm. Um, <laughs> and that wasn't even that long ago. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: I think I, this also generated an idea of how we saw ourselves. And uh, the philosopher Edward Said actually coined the term Orientalism. Yeah. Because it was the way how... The West orientalized the, the, the visual or the representation of the Orient. And at some point, we started to fear ourselves.
2: Absolutely. It's, to me, it is really fascinating because what he is saying is that This West invents a place they call the Orient and it's somewhere out in the universe. It is not actually the Middle East.
0: Mm -hmm. It is what's east of
2: Europe. Thank you. But the thing is when this Orientalism gets also internalized by Arabs so that when they watch Hollywood and they see the typical Arab For them also, it is somewhere out in the universe. Mm -hmm. They don't make the link that they are being humanized. Mm -hmm. It's just somewhere out there. It's further east. Yes, (laughs) it's a bit more further (laughs) east, thank you. So it's really interesting because I I like that you mentioned Edward Said because for him, both incidents are colonialism. Mm -hmm. The one that is establishing the discourse and the one that is swallowing the discourse without questioning it. They both feed into this, let's call it, neo-imperialist culture. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly, yes.
0: You mentioned, uh, Sherelle, you mentioned something about uh, normalism when we were, uh, hyper-normalism, normalization, my bad, my bad, bad, bad I'm, not, I'm misspeaking now, uh, when we were talking privately. And I think if you could, that, that that really relates to what's being said now. And I think if you could explain how you view this in uh, Lebanon and, and, mm, and more.
1: Gladly. I mean, um, hyper-normalization is... Basically, it's a failed system. Let me speak for Lebanon. I can't speak for the entire Arab world. but no, for Lebanon- can't you? No, I can't. Oh, shit. Oh, okay, well, I'll turn this off
0: then. <laughs> I mean,
1: um, the people know that it's a failed system. The government knows that it's a failed system. And the government knows that the people know that it's a failed system. Mm. And yet, we're still living in this normalized world. And this is what's actually called a hyper-normalization. Because you're living in a state of denial and you're trying to fix uh, the consequences of a problem rather than fixing the problem itself. And you're living as if it's normal, you know, and it's seen in the government in Lebanon right now. And this is why the 17 October revolution happened, because we see the inconsistencies and the, the, the problem within the system. And we're trying to communicate that, but still the people in power are not seeing it or they're acting as if they're not seeing it because if they do actually see it i mean what what are they going to do these are the people who started the civil war actually forgave themselves after the war and they <laughs> took over the took over power they're still they are our prime minister the speaker of parliament the president is actually was the former general of the Lebanese army and he was part of um of the civil war, and it was an, a severe battle between between the Lebanese army and what was known as the Lebanese forces. They were acting together against Syrian. Uh, I think you you can also elaborate on that. They were fighting against uh, Syrian army, and then uh, they fought against each other because <laughs> they <That's>, won. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's such a weird concept to talk about. It was a it was a huge mess and. No one talks about it. And I think this we need to wake up uh, from this hyper-normalization. I think the Arab Spring is the quintessential of this because people are waking up. This is not right. We, we are not living a normal life, so we have to wake up from it. And the revolution in Lebanon changed this narrative. It made people aware that our system is failing and we need to act now. And the people in power are not doing much. So
0: yeah. this is what
1: hyper-normalization is.
0: I think both of you hit uh, similar, similar, I guess, conclusions for both uh, the internalization of Orientalism and this kind of hyper-normalization yep. you get. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, because it's, for us, it's also normal that Islam equals terror. No, this is what's coming to a conclusion, you know. But I, was, I sent a YouTube video about the explanation of Orientalism to a friend of mine in Lebanon, and she was like, I wasn't aware of that. Even philosophers in the Middle East who talked about this are not even known in the Middle East. There's a lot of lack of communication and education and institutional uh, co- education. You don't know about this. Civil war is not even taught. You don't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. Everything you know is culturally based and this creates more problem because if you come for example from an Islamic family you know bad things about the Christians and if you come from a Christian family you know the bad things about the Muslims or the Druze or whatever
2: definitely within every religion also sectarianism is prominent
1: yes exactly because in Lebanon it became translated (coughs) as people would be ready to fight for their religion before they are ready to fight for their country. And the civil war is a perfect example of that because Lebanon was divided, Beirut was divided into West and East, and it still is right now, even though the borders are gone. Even though there's no physical fighting, there's still cultural tension. I don't know if you... I,
2: I definitely agree. And you know what? Sadly, from the people's perspective, this makes sense because fighting for their country was always fighting for the greater Arab homeland. When that completely failed they need to fall back onto something. Mm-hmm. They, people cannot live with an ideological vacuum. They need to believe in something. Mm-hmm. And since there is no solid alternative waving in the air, since all the projects of Arab unity were based upon blood, mm-hmm. people start looking towards different directions. So you have a lot of Lebanese people starting to come out and say, oh, we're not Arabs, we're Phoenicians. <laughs> Or some, a lot of Syrians coming out and saying, no, it's not the Arab identity, it's the Sunni. Mm-hmm. Or a lot of people in Iraq welcoming the Iranian invasion. I call it invasion and imperialism even. And they say, yeah, because it's the Shia identity that matters. So they, they, they need to fall back onto something. They need mm-hmm. to be part of a greater formation. And since Arab nationalism failed, then it is religion, Islam or sect.
1: Yeah, exactly, because Arabs in them within themselves are not united. No. There's problems within Lebanon, and then within Lebanon and Syria, and then within Lebanon, Syria, Palestine. Like, all of the countries are fighting with each other. Definitely. So if they're not united, how can you form a good Arab state? And actually, I wanted to ask you about it, because you mentioned it in your... Um, in your article there's a lot of there's this fear discourse of pan-Arabism the state the state of United Arab countries would you think it's a good idea and how do you think it would work
2: (laughs) I don't want to cry um (laughs) um yeah it's 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 a I do think it is a good idea. The question is the how. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot for us to gain from each other. And also, if I look at the Europeans, from Portugal to Poland, it's one union, but you guys speak a million different languages. It's not a common identity. Mm -hmm. And historically, it doesn't correspond to anything. Mm -hmm. It was just imperial wars that ended up in so much war that they decided to stop war and form a union. And now there is a pure artificial identity with a lot of reaction from right-wing people that refuse it. But... Already in the 14th century, there are a lot of thinkers who are aware that it is one nation from Morocco to Baghdad. There is a lot of ethnicities, there is a lot of sects, but we talk about it uh, as politically one nation. Culturally, we're not all Arabs. We have Mm -hmm. Kurds, we have Assyrians, it's very diverse, and Mm -hmm. it's really ancient communities. But politically, they try to create it all as one entity. How is this gonna happen in the future? I do not think we can challenge the borders anymore. Because it's it's unless kind of a
1: sensitive point. <laughs> yes.
2: And it's important to say that sometimes in history, when you really lose complete hope in challenging the borders, then borders are going to be changed. History sure. works in, in fabulous ways mm-hmm. and you don't always get it. But I think also along the lines of a broader union where every state maintains its uh, sovereignty, but there is an inter-Arab cooperation that does not allow for foreign powers to meddle in into these things. For example, we had ISIS emerging in Syria and there was an international coalition for the defeat of ISIS. Believe me, our countries can do it on their own. (laughs) Why do we need a foreign power to come and do this? Mm -hmm. We did not need that. But it's because it's a client system, you end up with America and Russia coming in. But I am definitely sure that the Egyptian army and the Saudi army would have been capable
1: of finishing the whole business
2: on their own, Mm -hmm.
1: definitely. Would you agree, Brendan?
0: Well, I'm, I don't know. Uh, I think it's, it's an interesting point to, to say and obviously because of the way it went, we'll, we can't know, but... I mean, if you look at... I don't, I don't know if the Saudis have... They might have the weaponry and the, the money, but the capability? Yeah. Who knows? Mm. The Iraqi army was probably the only force in the Middle East that was able to do anything
2: it was the fourth most uh, powerful army in the world in terms of numbers and equipment it was yeah the Iraqi army was very powerful so they had the capacity to conduct something like this and that is why when Iraq annexed Kuwait they had to bring the United States in because Arabs knew if -hmm. they put all their armies together they're not moving Saddam one meter back to Iraq Mm -hmm. so they needed an outside force to come in and assist this but the outside force does not care about Kuwait at all whatsoever it is about their geostrategic interests
0: I mean we don't have to go very far from from Syria and Iraq to to see outside interests even internal imperialism mm-hmm. with um, the Turkish uh, Iranian and Saudi interests and to a growing degree the Israeli interests in in the region and who's in between all four of these, like this perfect square of...
2: We are the Poland in the Arab world, man. Exactly. We're smashed by Iran from one side and from by the other camp from and from Turkey, from the north, the south, Saudi Arabia, and we are just stuck in between. Yeah.
0: This is what I was talking to about a friend. It's interesting that you said uh, you're the po- like the Poland of the Middle East. I, I said the exact same thing. <laughs> I think it's, it's amazing uh, how unfortunate the geography and the situation, like just...
2: Your geography is your destiny and we, yeah, we have not a very lucky geography. I mean, it's exceptionally lucky, but it's not very lucky. It's, it's, it is, it is a very historical place. It's very rich and it's very, it it contributed to the world a lot, but at the end you end up with stuff that are extremely odd. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to some friends also saying that Syria and Iraq one day taught the world, Mm -hmm. the humanity uh, techniques of agriculture mm-hmm. these countries are on the verge of famines now and it's just exceptionally odd to see it like this so we we do need a lot of action to accomplish some sort of arab unity yeah. only if we're creative enough to think about arab unity in different terms
1: yeah. i think our generation is going to do it inshallah, inshallah. <laughs> I think
0: that might be a nice note to end it on yeah. to be quite honest uh, hopeful so. one uh,
1: hope for the future i mean here we are talking about it right this is like step one mm-hmm, what's mm-hmm. step two take over the world step two is uh, <laughs> politicizing
2: <laughs> diasporas
1: <laughs> yes we need to engage diasporas we need to get involved politics is has this weird discourse around it thinking that politics is such a it is a power play let's Face it, but politics
0: is about power. Yeah. Yes, exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we are so afraid of it. I mean, because I grew up hating politics because I saw what politics did to my country. And now I realize that politics is just talking and communicating what you want, talking and communicating to reach a solution. Uh-huh. It's just, how do you say it? Like it's, a, it's just a conversation, a political conversation that you would have So you would reach a solution. It it shouldn't be such a repressive image of politics. It should
2: be dialectic. It should be dialectic. And, you know, again, we are trapped in a lot of paradoxes, but we need to carry on. We need Mm -hmm. to roll our sleeves and do some work because every time we try to do something, we're blocked. But it's, I know it's hard to say, but this does not mean that we shouldn't stop. We should really keep trying. We should keep trying in, in different ways. There's a lot to be done. And uh you know geopolitical alliances are not going anywhere, yeah, so unfortunately, we need to find ourselves a position within these alliances if we want to do something, mm-hmm. because to talk about ideological goals like democracy in Syria or equality in Syria without understanding what is at stake for the russians Egyptians, saudis, israelis, Turks mm-hmm. is exceptionally trivial yeah. it's really it's it's senseless true, yeah.
1: Thank you so much for having this conversation with us. Thank you for having me. It's
2: it's a pleasure. I can go on for 10 hours. (laughs) I think you too. We will go for 10 hours after this talk,
1: for sure. (laughs) We will. Of course we will. So to everyone who is interested in reading the article of AJ, it's going to be on our website, themasterofdiplomat.org. And uh, please...
2: I, I, I would love to have your feedback also on the article, your critique and stuff. Although it's a fantastic article, so it I don't know. It if can't be
1: better. <laughs>
2: but it's please go ahead and feel free to share your thoughts with me. I also left some poems in the article that are very personal for every Arab, you know, by Abu Qasim Shabi. Maybe we should leave on me reciting the last. Yeah, I was about uh, to ask. Can I
0: have it, please? I don't think
2: Can I read it in English? It's I don't think we have it. We don't have it? Okay, no. so you can Google it. It's Abul Qasim al the will to live. You guys have some cell phones and smartphones. You can do it. Thank you so much for this wonderful talk. I look forward to having conversations more and more. The Middle East is not going anywhere, imperialism yes. is not going anywhere, and we are not
0: going anywhere.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Inshallah, we'll have it all. Be peaceful one day. Inshallah,
2: inshallah. We have faith.
0: Um, yeah, I'm going to end this podcast by first saying that this podcast was brought to you by the student students of UNOMERIT, uh the United Nations University here in Maastricht. Uh, we are the Maastricht Diplomat recording in uh, With Love Studio. So thank you very much for hosting us. And we're going to fade out on a song which song did we decide on?
1: Maltini. Mautini.
0: Mautini. Mautini. We're
1: going to cry so Oof. much.
0: Yes. <laughs> Would you just oh. tell us quickly what this song is about? No, you go
2: ahead. No, I can't. I'm going to cry too. Oh,
1: no, <laughs> I can't. No. This is we have to mention this because it's very hard to talk about such subject without mm-hmm. coming to tears because it's very personal and very emotional seeing that you came from that and I came from that and we here we are talking about it as if it's something very jolly.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. We're able to smile. That's already an accomplishment to be honest. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a it's an accomplishment. So we're gonna leave you with this song.
2: It's a it's a it's a wonderful song. It's 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 very well known among all the Arabs. It's called Maltini, My Homeland and it's really beautiful poetry written for Arab homeland not mentioning the name of any specific state, it's for all Arabs. And the Iraqis adopted it as their national anthem after Saddam, so in the, in the Iraq post-Saddam. Um, it, it's a wonderful song, it makes a lot of people cry. Um, if you cry, remember Arab homeland. Thank you so much, we love you. Mm-hmm. Salam Alaikum.
0: Thank you very much. I would like to thank you again for listening. Unfortunately, you can't play these songs, but I insist you go listen to Mautini by Aya Ryunan. I also wish you a lovely day, and hope you enjoyed this discussion. You can find more of The Mastery Diplomat on our website, maastrichtdiplomat.org, or on Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, just generally on the internet. So, I wish you a lovely day, and hoi hoi.